Welcome to the Retail Insider video interview series. I'm your host, Craig Patterson, and we're joined here with a special guest, Daniel Ritchie. He's a retail veteran with all kinds of experience in all kinds of areas. Uh, also, you're doing distribution with Dr. Varanias here in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. Pleasure. I'm really happy to be here and to talk about my experiences over the last, God, it's 45 years. <laughs> I've been it's been a while. In, in the retail business. So, yeah, it's a long time. But, uh, you know, it started for me back in Montreal in, in 1978 when I joined Bolt Renfrew. And I joined them there as the traffic manager, looking after the movement of, of products into the country and around the country. Um, and at the time, the business was owned by Carter Holly Hale, the big U.S. conglomerate who, over the course of the previous 15 to 20 years, had put together uh, department store, regional department store chains into a bigger group, like Emporium Capwell from San Francisco and Talheimers from Virginia and uh, Wanamakers from Philadelphia, and then of course the jewels in the crown, Neiman Marcus for Dirk Goodman, and eventually Holt Renfrew, which prior to that had been privately owned by the Walker family. So it was uh, it was a really good introduction because at the time um, in the in the late seventies, early eighties, with Carter Holly Hill, we had an opportunity to interact with our colleagues across North America. Um, and go to conferences and learn about different ways of doing things and look at economies of scale. But like everything else, um, you know, those things sometimes come tumbling down when they don't keep up with the times. And, you know, we've seen over the years what's happened to the department store business in Canada, but also in the U.S. All these regional players are gone now. You know, eventually they all got sucked, sucked up into Macy's and, and Bloomingdale's, I suppose. But um it's uh, it, it was a fun time. It was a heady time in retail uh, until 1986 when Gail and Weston came along and said, I think I'd like to try this. So um, the Weston family, through their private investment holding company, Whittington Investment, bought Holt Renfrew from uh, Carter Holly Hale in 1986. And then we, we started on a, a, a new journey with a new team of people. Change at the top. The president was swapped out. Um, and um, you know, we went on from there. During the time I was there, couldn't say that the company made a lot of money, couldn't say that the company lost a lot of money. It was kind of just a wipe your face situation. Um, and um, you know, they, they were looking for their niche. We spent a lot of time refocusing our buying team on um, ensuring that we didn't have any overlap. Previously, we had a lot of buyers who had specific remits, but they were overlapping suppliers and so on. So it was a matter of cleaning all that up and getting some focus. And we bought, we brought in a, a retail consulting group to help with that. Management Horizons actually out of the UK. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It helped us to reinvent the business. At the same time, we were starting to look at profitability by store, expanding in some markets, closing down other markets getting out of suburban stores in both, um, well, mostly in Montreal, but in Quebec City, um, and even in Winnipeg, where we had multiple stores, and then looking for the right format to roll forward. Um, we had a couple of shops that were designed by the Watt Group, uh, famous for their involvement with, uh, with the Westons um, and Loblaws in particular, working through with Dave Nickel from uh, President's Choice at the time. Uh, but they they became just a little bit too pedestrian, not special enough for 
our our consumers. So they didn't really survive in the long run. But it was it was a great experience. I was there for 15 years and then rode off into the sunset, as you do, um, to try something different. Daniel, you were there when Holt Renfrew relocated its store on Bloor Street from, I think it was 144 Bloor Street, which was about a 60,000 yep. square foot tall narrow store, to the current yep. uh, flagship location, which is located at 50 Bloor Street West. What was that transition like to create that flagship store, which is still there today on Bloor Street? It's a little bigger and looks a little different. It is a lot bigger and it looks a lot different, yeah. Um, but um, at the time, my, my major focus at the time, my role at the time was to get the products in that were gonna fill that store, less so about how it was run and managed. But the interesting thing was that that store opened in 1979, um, but it never really took off. We had tr trouble from almost from day one creating that buzz and that excitement and that and that customer focus that we needed and it was one of the major reasons that the business decided to up stakes in montreal and move its head office to toronto and um, in doing that there's the theory that the, the store that has the biggest buzz and the biggest opportunity is always the one that the merchants have their eye on so our buying office, our head office, when we moved, was actually right in the store, in, uh, in the, uh, the part of the shop today that is homeware and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the accessories, the things that are up that little staircase when you go through the store uh, to, the, to the east side. That was the buying office back then. Um, and you know, eventually it's all been turned into retail space, which was the right thing to do. But at the time, having the buyers actually physically have to walk through the store multiple times a day is what really put focus on what customers needed in Toronto, because the markets are all very different, as you know. So that, that was a, a big benefit. And I, I think it was then that Toronto suddenly started to take off and Bloor Street became the number one store in the chain. Interesting. What happened with Montreal? It had a it closed a while ago. A flagship store in Sherbrooke Street. Now there's of course Holt Renfrew Ogilvy, but uh, uh, Montreal saw a bit of a downturn in its uh, retail from the late seventies, I think, into the eighties. I, I I would say that it did. I mean, it was a time when we had a number of suburban stores in Montreal as well, um, in Dorval and Laval, um, in several different places, and we had even hotel lobbies like the Four Seasons and Ritz Carlton. So, you know, we looked at profitability around all those models and started to pull it back in um, and really focus on the main shops at the time would have been Fairview in uh, the West End, Rockland, which we renovated and rebuilt. We had left Rockland and came back when the project, uh, the, the mall was actually being renovated and really focused on a, a, a fewer parts of the city and a fewer consumer profiles. Um, and we were at the time trading in that beautiful 1300 Sherbrooke Street Art Deco building um, that was actually an amalgamation of a couple of buildings. So you would get off on one floor and you'd have to figure out where you needed to get to to go to the other floor. Um, but over time, I guess the, the one thing about that building is that it you couldn't do much with it in terms of expansion. And the, the, each floor's footprint was really tiny. You talked about that Bloor Street store, the old one at 144. It was, Sherbrooke was similar to that. It was a lot of, what was seven or eight floors, all small footprints, um, and you couldn't do a whole lot with it. So 
Um, I think when the Ogilvy thing came along, and I was long gone by then, but I think it made sense for Fultz to look at how they could actually do the things they wanted to do in, in a, a more um, productive way. Oh, yeah. And now uh, going to, say, Western Canada, the Vancouver store at the Pacific Centre had already been open by the time you joined Holt Renfrew. I think that was around 75 yes. that it opened. Yeah, it was already there. Um, and again, that's a, a, a footprint that changed dramatically over the years uh, from then to what it is today. But Vancouver was uh, a city that was starting to catch fire then. There, were, you know, there was an, an influx of, of Asians, particularly Japanese tourists. Um, so it was a matter of how you how you catered to them and how you got money out of that population when they when they arrived in the city because they weren't there for that long. But um, over time, it grew. There was always speculation that we would have a second store in Vancouver. There was talk around Oak Ridge. There was talk around uh, um, Royal Plaza, Plaza Royale in uh, North Vancouver. Um, and then ultimately we ended up with a store in Whistler, which uh, was in the, the new Chateau Whistler. It never really took off. It was hard to merchandise. Uh, the problem was you never knew who was going to be in town. Profiles were so different, wildly different. And so, it was tiny. Um, I, re I remember this. There were 91, I think it opened. Yeah. And the other challenge that we we always had in Vancouver was around being able to get the brands that we wanted in the shop because there were a couple of stores that had been around forever, like Leone's and Boboli um, and Biblos. And they, they had these brands that you really needed at the time locked up. So you couldn't get them. Um, and that, that meant that we had, to, we had to have, in some regards, brands that were not as popular. Um, you know, I, I'm sure the platform has has changed completely today, but back then it was uh, it was a challenge. You just couldn't get the brands that you wanted to have. Yeah. Now let's talk Western Canada a little bit more. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, a, a new Holt Renfrew opened in Edmonton. It left Jasper Avenue and moved to the Manual Life Center. Um, yeah. Because you you would have been in there around that time too. That was around the 80, 83. It was 80, 80 or eighty two, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, I was there at the time. Uh, we were on a expansion kick. We were looking for property in Calgary because we had a terrible shop on 8th Avenue. And then we had Chinook. And eventually we opened downtown Calgary as part of that new Eaton Center development and closed Chinook. Um, and it was a similar thing at Edmonton. We had an old tired store and we went into that brand new Manulife Center made a huge difference to the business. And we were a, a, quite a force in, in Edmonton for a long time. Um, similarly with Ottawa, we opened Ottawa on Spark Street in 1978. Um, and it was a great little store for the longest time, but that whole Ottawa market has changed so dramatically now that um, you just couldn't, you just, they, they, they eventually left Spark Street, I think it was partly an access issue too. You couldn't get to the store all that easily. So, um, you know, it was on a mall on one side, a pedestrian mall. So that was a challenge. Um, and then in Winnipeg, same thing. We were, we were, we had two stores in Winnipeg. Um, we eventually got rid of one and just traded. We had, we were in Polo Park and downtown. Eventually when Portage Place was redeveloped, we went in there and, and ditched the Polo Park store. 
So lots of change over time. Quebec City, similar story. Uh, the legacy store in uh, downtown Quebec on Boisde Street was eventually closed and all the attention was put onto Saint-Foy. Um, and, you know, it remains there. It remains there. So that, that's where the consumer has migrated to. Downtown in a lot of Canadian cities is just not that important anymore. And what happened to the Quebec City population? We actually discussed this before, where there was an aging of a bit of the carriage trade and that the younger generation uh, may, may have gone I think elsewhere. Herbs. I think there, there's a fair number of people during that time frame who left Quebec City completely because of opportunity or lack thereof. Um, the population aged, but those who stuck around didn't stay in the downtown core. So they were in Saint-Foy, they were in Charlotte, they were in communities that were more... Um, you know, the sleepy town communities, uh, suburban communities around the city. So trying to get somebody downtown was a real challenge. And the other thing that I don't think you can discount um, is that one of the things that changed the profile during those days with Holtz was that it was very much reliant on a fur trade that was disappearing for obvious reasons. People, you know, were moving away from, from real furs to have faux furs or no furs at all. And, and I think that was a big change. I mean, the, the whole Renfrew business really revolved around the fur trade back in 1837. Um, and that was there even until you know not that long ago where you had not just the sale of fur coats, you also had the, win the summer storage of fur coats. And that was a massive business for Holtz. You know, we had in, in the uh, Montreal store, we had uh, a massive fur ball that was two stories high um, in the building adjacent to the main store. Um, and it was temperature controlled and all that sort of thing. And we had similar fur storage businesses right across Canada, which were supplemented by or led by, depending on the city, the actual sale of fur coats. So, you know, as, as that changed, it really changed the business big time. And that's something that I think is probably a Quebec City tale all, all on its own because Quebec City, um, you know, th those customers were either gone or dead. <laughs> Nobody was wearing furs anymore. That is so interesting. And the stores like say at Polo Park in Winnipeg, um, do you remember how large they were? They, they were smaller sort of boutique size? They were smaller. You... They probably were in, um, in and around five to 6,000 square feet. They weren't huge stores, you know, maybe stretching to 10,000 square feet in some cases, but they weren't big stores. They were definitely not big stores. That is so interesting. And today, uh, all the whole Renfrew stores are quite big. I think the smallest one is about 130,000 square feet, at least in gross square footage. And I think that's the Yorkdale store in uh, Toronto. Still big. Yeah. Yeah, well, considering that it's their biggest volume, the productivity per square foot is really and, and, and pretty good in, in a place like Yorkdale, isn't it? It sure is. Oh, my goodness. Now, after Holt Renfrew, you'd uh, left in 1993. You went to, um, you were VP of operations at Bretton's. I, I was there for a short time. Um, there were a number of people that were at Bretton's to, or in the ETAC sales group. Um, one of them I had a really great relationship with. His name was Alfred Chan. Um, and he owned ETAC sales with his brother. And ETAC sales was an importer-exporter kind of business. 
um, in, and not at the high end, in the low end, but he had bought Ports International uh, from the um, family that owned it and was running that. And then he bought Bretton's and couldn't figure out then, you know, Alfred was the kind of guy who would buy something and then try to figure out what to do with it. So um, it wasn't strategic. It was, it was just kind of, let's have a bigger piece of the pie. So um, at the time, um, I went there. He had brought uh, Don Evans in. I don't know if you knew Don Evans. He was the president of Tip Top for years and years and years. Anyway, Alfred brought him in. Um, and, you know, it wasn't too long before the parent company got itself into a massive amount of trouble. And we, you know, the, the divisions all just started falling like dominoes, whether it was Ports or Tabby at the time, it was also part of the group. Uh, or others it just you know didn't have a happy ending he had bought bretons from cna group um, because they could never make it work it ended up being for them just a store full of their own brands um, and you know over time that's not what the customer was looking for they didn't want another place where they would just go and buy things they could get down the mall and in a freestanding store so the the time frame there was really short i worked with um Alfred and Don on trying to reestablish Bretton's. And then I worked with uh, the receivers um, on trying to sell it. And then eventually with the, with the liquidator to get the best amount of money out of the assets that we possibly could. But it was, uh, it was uh, too bad really, because I think at the time the country could have supported something that was that bridge between department store and, and a specialty store. Um, I don't know where that market even is today, to be honest. I don't think it exists in, a, in the same way that it did then. Um, and what we've seen is not just that go away, but the entire mass market of um, middle, mid market of department stores doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. I remember Bretton's being a teenager. I'd buy my Alfred Sung jeans on stale uh you know but they had a area for fragrances i remember including for men uh, they didn't have seem to have a lot of footwear but it was it's very much a fashion store i think oh yeah it was a fashion store we had we had all the brands that we needed in that mid market but you know it was uh, it maybe just wasn't special enough for the right people to shop at and and we definitely couldn't sell it to anybody we tried <laughs> there were a number of uh, suitors that, but i think at the end they were more tire kickers just to try and figure out what was going on in the business than actually serious purchasers and the locations were interesting for bretons too um the flagship well i mean it was started in ottawa i think i'm just going by memory from being younger and doing some research of course Reed as well Center. Yeah, Rideau Center. The um, I know there was one at the Manny Life Center in Toronto, but there was like Metropolis at Metrotown and Burnaby in the Vancouver area. We had West Edmonton Mall. Calgary had Market Mall, I'm trying to remember now. Oh, Calgary was Chinook. Chinook, sorry. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what they were looking at at the time was trying to identify by market where the right customer was that Holt Renfrew wasn't. So... In Ottawa, Rideau Center, far away enough from Spark Street. And then there was a second store in Saint Laurent Mall to capture that suburban market. Um, when it came to Toronto, the first store here was actually Promenade. Hmm. And it opened before um, Bloor Street did, a couple of years before Bloor Street did. Um, Bloor Street was a suicide mission from the beginning. <laughs> Nobody ever expected that store was going to survive, and it, it didn't. 
um, and it sucked dry a lot of money from the rest of the chain. But uh, yeah, Chinook, again, Holt Renfrew had left Chinook, so there was a theory that there was an opening there. Vancouver at the time, there really was nothing available in the downtown core. It was pretty tight. So the, the thought was, let's go out to Burnaby, to Metrotown, and that's where the store ended up. But all those stores were in place by the time I arrived. I was there, at, you know, at the, the, the beginning of the end, not the end of the beginning. Do you remember uh, Creed's was in the same shopping center as Breton's, the, the Manulife Center in Edmonton? Uh, Creed's, Creed's was the big competition to, to um, Holtz and Bloor Street. And Creed's, they lived and died also on the fur trade. And, you know, their business started to get really tough when furs really became um, not very popular anymore. Um, and they, they were running a massive fur storage business that just over very quickly over a few years evaporated. So, um, yeah, it was a, a great business, a great family. They're still around doing a few things here and there. But um, I don't think that Bretton's was ever a challenge to Creed's or, or you know, just would have been a completely different customer. I couldn't imagine a Creed's customer who was probably a little more Tony even than Holt Renfrew. Um, I couldn't imagine them going into a Breton store ever. How did Holt's and uh, Creed's interact off of each other or, or in terms of consumers? Creed's was almost the, I don't want to say the fancier store, but I think at the time with Chanel and Ungaro and a few of the other brands, or Valentino, I, I think that Creed's might have had things locked up for a little bit there compared to Holtz, maybe. They did. I, you know, it was a similar challenge to what Holtz faced in Vancouver. The brands that they really coveted, they couldn't get because Creed's had them. Um, and then, you know, at a, at a certain point, Holtz tried to build a different proposition to go after things like Ralph Lauren, you know, the top of the range and built a huge Ralph Lauren boutique inside Bloor Street. Um, and similarly went after Yves Saint Laurent at a time when Yves Saint Laurent was probably not at its best so um there there were challenges there as you say creeds had all the big name brands so it was it was difficult and i think one of the things holtz did and did well was that they had the fashion eye to be able to identify what the up-and-coming brands were so you know getting in on the ground floor with with some of those people made a huge difference yeah, yeah, and also we had a recession in uh, 1991. Uh, Creed's left. We lost a lot of stores at the Hazelton Lanes as well, which uh, was probably one of the world's top luxury malls, at least in terms of the brands that were available there uh, from the late 70s, I think, until the early 90s. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the whole the whole downtown phenomenon. It's it's not just what it's not really just one thing. I think you have. An, an overstored situation for the customer profile you're chasing. But I'm, I think that it's become really difficult to shop downtown. Um, you know, you, you look at trying to access some of the stores along that, uh, you know, million dollar mile or whatever they call it on Bloor Street. And it's, uh, it's a challenge just to find parking. It's a challenge to, to find a point of difference, somewhere where you want to be, that you feel you want to be, that you don't have to trudge from store to store in the heat of the summer or the, the freezing cold of the snowy winter. So, um, you know, that, that, whole, that whole downtown vibe I find so different than it used to be. And you look at some of the things that have popped up along Bloor Street, 
um, you know, fabric land is coming. <laughs> I look it's at open. That's I went to the opening. It was a couple of days ago. <laughs> right. Fabric on Bloor Street across from Port Renfrew. I think that's hilarious. No, no, it's it's quite a yeah. I mean, it was a fun tour, but it's it's not the right location for that retailer. I agree completely. It's no, I can't I can't imagine who's going to go shop there unless unless you've got young kids who are in fashion school or like to sew and they go to Holtz and they remember what they saw and they run across the street and buy the fabric to make it themselves. But it's a weird place for them to be. I'm sure there's a real estate play going on, but um, it's bizarre. Uh, let's talk about dialects next here. Um, you were working, I think, more with Tip Top Tailors because there was a, um, yep. a CCA situation, right? Yeah, I was VP opposite Tip Top. We were in the process of trying to um, reinvent the business, cutting down layers of management. I, I think when I got there, there were underneath in my in my portfolio, there were 160 or 180 stores. So it was way overstored. Um, we didn't really have a great handle on stores that should be closed because of, you know, four wall losses. And then when we did, sometimes we were tied into the lease because of the corporation more than the brand. So, you know, we had to be there because it was good for Fairweather and all the other byway and whoever else was there at the time. So that was a challenge, but in my portfolio, I had three regional managers and each regional manager had about eight or 10 district managers. And then like, by the time you narrowed it down, you ended up with a situation where each store manager, uh, each district manager had maybe three to five shops to manage, uh, which really meant that a store manager wasn't making any decisions. They were just there. So what we tried to do was blow that all away. And we went from this massive structure to just having eight regional managers across the country and nobody below them. So each one of them then had between 15 and 20 stores. And then store managers, we had to go on this massive re-education program so, so that they would have the skill set to actually run a business. So that was, it was a lot of fun. And I, I know that it was the beginning of a great turnaround, but again, with Tip Top, we struggled because the top of the pyramid fell down. Um, and you know, it was it was a, a really sad ending because I know of one senior um, corporate executive who actually took his own life because his his savings were completely wiped out. He had nothing. He went from being uh, somebody with you know great home in Toronto and cottage cottage country and all sorts of things to having absolutely nothing to his name, and he couldn't cope with it. And, you know, when those things happen, you, it really drives home the reality of um, lots of different things, but, you know, the humanity of it, but also, you know, if there's a lesson in it, the lesson is, you know, eggs in one basket, not a, really is not a good idea. So, um, again, I worked with the liquidator there because of the experience I'd had at ETAC at Bretton's, um, the president of Tip Top actually said to me, you know what, you've got a handle on how all this works. So, even though there's the CFO, I'm going to get, get you to run the cash flow because you know how to do it and you know how to get money out of the liquidator, the, the, um, the, the court appointed monitors they were at that point. Um, and you know how to, to forecast what cash we need, what cash we have. What... So I was actually doing all of that work 
and was a lot of fun. But at the same time, I was being courted by uh, Nuance. It uh, was Alders at the time to go and run their merchandising team. Uh, this was 1995, so, right? Yeah, but 95, not not being sure where the tip up thing was going to fall out, um, especially after the Bretons experience. I thought it made more sense for me to take an opportunity when it was in front of me. And I wasn't at Alders for more than six months when Nuance came along and bought the business. So uh, that changed things dramatically because at the time, uh, Alders was was a joint venture between Alders department stores in the UK and an engineering firm in Canada who really had no skin in the business except for money and and because you needed a, a partner. Foreign companies couldn't own businesses in Canada back in those days. You had to have a Canadian majority shareholder. So they found someone who was completely disinterested in the, the actual running of the business. Um, and it was an engineering firm from Mississauga. And they, they were the majority shareholder. So what was curious was that some of the people in, in the team worked for the Canadian business like my team of people worked for the Canadian business, but I actually worked for the UK. And at the time when that divorce happened and, and uh, nuance was coming in, there was a massive due diligence project and my office was deemed to be the soil of the Brits and not uh, of the uh, Canadian team. So all the confidential documents and everything were in my office surrounded me in boxes until all that due diligence took place and, and things shook out. But it was, uh, it was a tough situation because it was one of those things where a, a, a fish swallowed a whale. And then the whale said, great, you know, because Nuance at the time was a very tiny player. They bought this massive duty-free business and they bought it on the basis that there was going to be all kinds of economies of scale in this global business and they never really materialized so it uh, it, it was a challenge and i know that it actually brought down uh the ceo at the time it was uh rene deflon uh crazy swiss guy loved him absolutely loved him um but um you know the 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 business just didn't have enough direction. We worked on all of these committees and groups and different project teams where we were looking for ways to save money and, and get more margin from suppliers and all that sort of thing. And it just never happened. The assumptions before they bought the business were not very good. That is so interesting. The first time I ever heard of Alders actually, or the first time I ever saw something was, and I'm not joking, an episode of Mr. Bean when I was younger. It's where Mr. Bean is crawling to the cosmetic section, kind of choking, whatever. So uh, I knew as a kid when I saw that there was an Alders duty-free store in Vancouver, it was the same name and the same logo. And I was quite confused. Uh, of course, yep. it became a nuanced, nuanced duty-free. Uh, in Canada, the, the stores were in, I think, Vancouver at the airport and downtown. Were they in Toronto at all? Do you remember? I, I don't remember back then, no. We had Pearson Airport as well, and we had Calgary. Okay. So um, and we had we had satellite stores in Banff, for example. Uh, so yeah, it was across uh, it was across Canada, but we also were running the U.S. business. So we had um, the Las Vegas airport. We had concessions at the Boston airport at Logan. 
Um, but our biggest U.S. business, which was really quite interesting, was the cruise ship business. And we had big, uh, vital lines like Holland America and Celebrity. And we, uh, we ran all the shops on board. So all of the people working in the stores on the retail, uh, on, in the retail shops on the cruise ship were, worked for us. Um, and that was a, was a fun part of doing store business because you would get on at one port and they're only allowed to open when they're at sea. So if you want to see a shop in operation, you can't do it from a dock. You have to, you have to sail, which was such a hardship. <laughs> so you just bop around, you know, get on in, in, in Fort Lauderdale and jump off in the Bahamas or, you know, jump on in the Bahamas and jump off in Puerto Rico or whatever. Um, and so that, that was a, a lot of fun, a really tough business because just like in airport retail, um, the margins, the rent margins are so ridiculously high. What you've got to promise in order to get the contract leaves you like pennies on the dollar to, to kind of uh, squeeze out. And if you can't squeeze them out, you're going to lose a lot of money. Now, with the duty-free in Vancouver, um, so there was there was a big duty-free store in downtown Vancouver. That closed in the early 2000s. It was actually, I think, at that point being run by Aldiesa, the Spanish group, which had bought out yep. uh, Nuance and had fired everybody. I know because I know they fired the store manager because he's a good friend of mine. But uh, uh, let's talk about downtown Vancouver for a moment because things have changed with duty-free. We don't have stores in Banff anymore. It, you know, I don't know if the law has changed. Do you have any, any insight into that? Yeah. I, I think the customer behavior has changed. And I think that, you know, back in the day, you used to get the, the most lucrative um, customer group were the Japanese uh, tourists. And they, uh, Japanese tourists don't wander. They don't do things on their own. They're not what we call independent packs. They are tour group packs. So they stay as a group, they go everywhere as a group, whether it's the hotel, the restaurants, the shopping, the entertainment, they do it all together, a busload at a time. So um, what I think what's happened over time is a, a number of things. First of all, the prices were really good in Canada for a Japanese consumer because there was a level of distribution in Japan that had layer on layer on layer on layer that made things really expensive. And the, the, the Japanese renovated their economy back in the late 90s, early 2000s to take a lot of those layers out. So suddenly goods were not as wildly uh, advantageous to them from a price point of view. Second thing that happened was that the younger Japanese consumer was becoming more independent and they didn't want to have to shop in these big groups and go on the bus and everything else. So, you know, when they started venturing out on their own, the world changed. Then, whereas back in the day, you had people that came to Vancouver, they spent a couple of days in Vancouver, then they would be um, bused to or flown to Calgary. They would do Lake Louise and Banff back to Calgary and then back to Japan and or vice versa, Calgary and then Vancouver, it didn't matter. Um, but the, that golden triangle suddenly started to become more about Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Um, Japanese tourists started going into places where they never really went before. And I think the biggest benefactor of that was Las Vegas. 
and you saw this massive influx of Japanese tourists into Las Vegas. So as, as the customer changed, I, I think the need for having a store, massively expensive store in downtown Vancouver became less obvious. So, um, you know, over time, it just, it just didn't, didn't really have a place anymore. And I have some okay. bizarre insider information too, because I met uh, the former head of Old uh, 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 I think he was from Spain and then was living in Vancouver and then ended up, I think, going to Miami afterwards. But uh, there was a, a lawsuit. Uh, I'm trying to remember everything that was involved, but the, the gist of it was uh, a tour bus parking spot in front of the duty-free store was taken out and this had a profound impact on sales because there were tour groups. They ended up started coming from China after the Japanese uh, weren't coming to Vancouver quite as much to shop. But uh, I think the sales at that store went from over seventy million dollars a year to something like three point two million. It was such I was a gonna, dra- I was there when I was there. That store was a fifty million dollars store back in the five days. zero five zero. Yeah, uh, it was. It was by far the biggest thing that. Alders had in their group as an individual unit. Some of the, the uh, Australian stores were good too. They had they had Sydney, they had Brisbane, um, and they were great. But they had multiple stores in those locations, so individually they didn't have one that was as big as you know. The and the other place we had, which was really hilarious, was we had Washington D.C. Um, the international terminal, uh, uh, airport terminal, but we also had. Uh, a downtown store in Washington. And it was a completely different focus because it wasn't Japanese, it was Koreans. And all they wanted were Burberry raincoats. So we used to have to make sure that we had this massive selection of Burberry raincoats when the Koreans showed up because that's what they wanted. It just shows you how much is driven by consumer behavior. And in some ways, there are, there are things you can do to mitigate the changes and go with them. In other ways, you just can't. So the business morphs around you and you can't do anything about it. Interesting, interesting. Now, do you remember um, in Vancouver, it may have been around the time, I think it was around the time you were there, DFS duty-free, which, which still exists. I think it's actually part of LVMH now, but um, had opened a store in, in uh, the Carlisle, which is now a luxury shopping center towards uh, Alberni and Thurlow streets, but I don't think it got a license. Do you remember anything about that? Um, no, they hadn't opened when I was there, uh, but their, their idea was to open and have it as a duty paid shop and just trade off their name because, you know, at, at the time, DFS was huge and huge in the Far East. So they own Singapore and Hong Kong and Macau and actually a lot of Australia too. The difference at the time uh, was that in in some markets like Australia, you could have multiple duty-free players trading against each other. In Canada, it's an exclusive contract. So whoever wins the bid has the exclusive rights to, to run the business. So it was a little bit different, but they had such a massive play in the Far East. It was just crazy. Um, and they, they also had San Francisco, they had Los Angeles, they had a big off airport store in Koreatown in LA. Um, and they had a, a, a big store in um, San Francisco as well. Over time, I think those businesses have all shrunk down, but uh, still an important part of what they do. And yes, you're right, they are owned by LVMH. LVMH bought the business as a way to goose their beauty brands, really. 
same reason that Sephora was interesting for them. Yeah, yeah, that is so interesting. I mean, I find the duty free interesting. I've been watching that for years. Uh, it seems like such a waste that DFS, I, the store was about 25,000 square feet on Alberni Street and was a failure. I don't know how long it was open for. Like we're thinking, like, I don't know, two to three years or something. It was uh, shocking. Yeah, well, at the, at, at the time, I mean, people are still price conscious, but um, if you could control the tour guides, you win. I mean, it came, it came down to that, but that was the thing about duty free is, first of all, the rents were, were extortion, um, but then you had to pay everybody off all along the food chain. You had to pay the tour guides, you had to pay the bus driver, you had to pay everybody all along the way. So you, you really had to hope there was something left at the end. This is fascinating. After duty free, you got into, uh, well, you, you, I think you went into a bit of a quote unquote retirement. You're never going to retire, are you, Daniel? But <laughs> you started... You got some franchises for the body shop, right? I've proven over time I'm not good at retirement. So, you know, and, and I think most people who are really seriously retire are dead in six months. But yeah, I bought I bought a, a body shop store. Um, one of the one of the guys that worked for me as a regional at um, Tip Top, I had said to him once upon a time, you know, just keep your ear to the ground if anything pops up, because he had gone to the body shop as the director of sales. So uh, one day out of the blue, he called me and he said, the store near knows this for sale. We should probably talk to the current owner. So I did that very quickly made a deal. I think that was in January of 1999. Um, and by May, I had taken the store over. Um, and I loved it because it was a chance to do my own thing. It was a chance to control my own destiny. It was a chance to get back with the customer again. There was nothing more invigorating than spending time on the floor talking to the folks that came in. Um, and it was in the heady days of the body shop. I mean, business was booming. Sales per square foot in Canada were the highest in the world. Uh, you made a, a lot of money. I mean, it was always outrageous to me that a, a store that did 1.4 million a year did 60% of that in four weeks at Christmas. Um, but, you know, you learned a lot about how to run a business, because if you didn't come out of Christmas strong, uh, you wouldn't make it to the next Christmas. <laughs> you you kind of had to bide your time and make sure you had enough cash to, to feed everybody that needed to be fed um, in the store. But at the time, Anita was still there. She, she was still actively involved in the business. And it was when she pulled back and handed it over to other people to run and then eventually sold it to L'Oreal um, that it got really, really difficult. Um, they started to do things that they've never recovered from, um, like taking the refill program out of the stores. You know, when you've got a, when you've got a clear point of difference and a, a competitive advantage on the green economy and you suddenly decide that you're going to move away from that it's a really interesting i guess is the right word move to make and and you know it was things like that that were the beginning of the end i used to have a bin in the stores where people would bring in their empty containers for recycle and the business got rid of all of those things that made it unique and different and went to more of a corporate uh, global position even with product at the time we used to have a buyer a, a, um, a vessel buyer who would go to the various trade shows and find the right containers for us to build our gifts in every Christmas. 
And then we had a choice. Either we could buy our pre-made gifts in these vessels from the head office in Canada, or we could have the vessels sent to us and we could have our own little cottage industry building them ourselves. Um, I always bought them because I didn't want the mess. But they took all that away. And they went from having these great containers that you could use after the fact for all sorts of different things to having these standard boxes that all looked the same and had no real character or, or point of difference. Um, and the, you know, the other thing that we were doing at the time, we were sourcing all of our accessories uh, centrally in Canada. And they took all that out and started doing it um, as a global proposition. We were actually bringing product into Canada um, and filling all the bottles here. It was all filled here in a, in a, a, a facility in Don Mills. Uh, and they took all that away and did everything centrally for North America out of Wake Forest, uh, New Jersey, and, and North Carolina. And it, it, uh, it just changed the whole complexion of the brand. And they went through some really tough times, and I don't think they've recovered. I don't think they'll ever recover. L'Oreal sold them to Natura. They just, um, they've just working on replacing the CEO again for Body Shop. Um, so in the meantime, L'Oreal has bought ASAP, which I thought was really interesting because they screwed up the body shop. Here we go again. That is so interesting. You, you um, got, let's talk a bit about the Middle East because um, you continued sort of in the beauty space, but uh, in a different realm. And then you've got some stuff happening here in, in modern days as well here with, with uh, uh, Dr. Varanias. But let's talk a little bit about the Middle East because you were saying earlier that uh, uh, you found some interesting learnings about how things were done differently and how to be open-minded. They were. You have to. You have to go there with an open mind. And the, the problem with the West is that we only know what we're told by the press and the media. And at the time, you know, the the region, it's had a bad name for a long time for various reasons. But um, what I discovered when I went there was I could either spend my time pointing out things that I thought they were doing wrong, or I could change my paradigm and say it's not really wrong if they don't know another way. It's just different. So I had to look at it from a different point of view, because if you aren't unable to do that, you'll never survive in that region. It's really, um, it, it really is quite an eye-opening uh, cultural experience, but I absolutely loved it. And I went in running the uh, beauty halls for uh, the company I was working for, Al Shaya, which is the largest franchise retailer in the world, running out of little Kuwait. Um, and they're, they're, um, success has really been very simple. They find brands that have an affinity to the consumers in the region, and then they bring those brands to the region, make a franchise deal, and just replicate. So they're not merchants. They're not store designers. Uh, they are property-led. So for them, I mean, being able to sit down with a, a new mall development and say to the guy, we really like the mall you're building, we'll take 30% of the space and then we'll decide how to divvy that up amongst our brands. I mean, it's not quite that simple, but it is that simple. Um, and this, this company has its arms in all different industries. So we had a massive food business with uh, Cheesecake Factory, PF Chang's, um, 1200 Starbucks locations in, in you know about 15 different countries. Um, so it, um, when I arrived there, the company had, I think, 15,000 employees. When I left, it was close to 50,000 employees. 
When I got there, the company had about 35 brands that it represented in the region. When I left, it was about 75 brands. Um, and I had a couple of roles. One is to run the beauty halls. And at the time, we had the franchise rights for Debenhams. And in fact, it's the only place in the world that I'm aware of where Debenhams is still running bricks and mortar because they made a deal with the new owners to just keep going. Um, whereas in the UK, it's an online business only. And then we had Harvey Nichols, for example. And then we had a standalone perfumery chain that was competing with Sephora at the time. But part of my role, which became really exciting, was to find brands that we would bring and open freestanding stores for, like Charlotte Tilbury, like um, NYX, uh, which was very popular, um, and a host of others. Um, and one of the brands that I found on uh, my journey was Dr. Varanias. And we brought it to the region and started opening stores for it. Of course, if you know the consumer in the Middle East, Fragrance is what it's all about. I mean, you, you, people here would laugh when I tell them that 65% of my sales were fragrance in the beauty hall. Whereas here, they'd be lucky to be 20% of sales. You know, it's, it's, here, it's more about skincare and then makeup. In the Middle East, it was, a, it was about 65% was uh, fragrance. And then you had a makeup business of 20 or 30%. And then you had 5 to 10%, which was uh, skincare. And people would say to me, well, you know, the conditions there, why would they not be more engaged in skincare regimes? Simple, because they're never outside. They go from the house to the car, to the mall, and, and back again. So in the Middle East, when in Kuwait, it's 55 degrees in the summer. You're not out walking, <laughs> just not done. So you have that aspect of it. And then the other aspect, which is becoming less of an issue, but certainly in 2010 was in its prime. People, are, the women there are covered up, especially in a place like Saudi Arabia. So, you know, between not being outside and being covered up, they didn't really feel the same kind of need to um, take on a skincare regime. That's changing now because, uh, you know, they're, they're catching up with where everybody else is particularly because they spend more time on their mobile phones on you know, Twitter. The highest usage of Twitter per capita in the world is Saudi Arabia. Most people don't know that. Wow. But there's nothing else to do. So that's what they do. You know, their entertainment is all about connecting on, online. So it, yeah, great, great opportunity. I brought a lot of brands to the region. One of the brands I brought was Dr. Varanias. And after I came back to Canada, they contacted me to say, hey, we don't have anybody in Canada. Would you be interested in taking the brand on? So I didn't have to think too hard. Um, I jumped on it pretty quickly, got up and running pretty quickly. We're about 18 months in distribution in Canada now. And we have three online uh, channels, one of which is our own, uh, drvaranias.ca. We have Amazon and the Bay, uh, but we also have 16 retail partners across Canada in major cities in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. So we're in the process of looking for more of those, and you can never have too many retail partners if they know what to do with your brand. Um, so we're, we're actively looking for more retail distribution at the same time actively growing um, our own website business because obviously that's where the margin is. 
And tell me a bit about the products because I, I even got a couple of them. There's everything from from the home. You've got um, kind of diffusers, or tell me sure. a little bit about. You'll be able to describe well, it better than I will be able to. We're we're broken down into three major categories. We have our diffuser line, which starts with a hundred ml refill. Sorry, hundred ml re, uh, room spray, and then we've got an assortment of diffusers that start at two hundred and fifty ml and go up to five thousand ml. So that's really meant for big spaces. Um, and then the second category that we, we uh, dance around in is candles. And again, our candles start from a very small 80 gram candle all the way up to a six kilogram candle, uh, which is massive again. Um, and then our third category that we're doing in Canada is car parfum, which is a, a diffuser for your car. Um, we have, 14 different scents that we carry in Canada. We've got the most popular ones. And the scents are broken down into two categories. There's what we call collection and then traditional. We have three collection fragrances that tend to be about 20% more money than the traditional. And then we have uh, 11 in the traditional range. Um, and the, the brand is constantly developing and growing. And we have some very interesting points of difference. I think the biggest one for me is that we have a refill program. So with some of our competition, you buy a diffuser and when it's empty, you have to throw it out and buy a new one. With ours, you can buy a refill and just keep topping it up. And every time you buy a refill, we'll give you a new set of reed sticks. So your thing always looks fresh. Your diffuser looks fresh. It performs better. It looks better. Um, and then um, we also have a, aside from a the refill program, we have a gift set program. And we traditionally do gift sets in two ways. We have a holiday assortment and we have an everyday assortment. So we've got something for everybody really at, at really good prices. And you know, our opening price point for uh, a diffuser is $110. It's not a lot of money if you consider the value you get out of it. Um, and the refill is half, half the price um, for that container. So it's not, not that it's half the price. It's, um, it's double the amount of liquid. So for, for almost the same price that you're paying for that diffuser. So that works that it works out well for us. And we, uh, we see big things ahead. Excellent. And yes, like you said, you're looking for more retailers, uh, in Canada in terms of distribution of Dr. Varenia. So we'll have um, some links in the show notes. What's the best way for people to get uh, um, in contact with you, say retailers, if they're interested in uh, um, carrying they the could, line? The best way to get would be through the uh, website, which is drvaranias.ca. Uh, you'll probably need to spell that out for them because it's, uh, it's a, a tricky name to pronounce. And I, I hear it pronounced a hundred different ways a day, which is always entertaining. Um, and there is a Dr. Varanius. He's still there. He's still active. He's still working in the business. He's still doing all the product and scent development. So it's not like it's uh, just an invented name. And the, the magical thing is that this is our this year is the 40th anniversary of the brand. So it's been around for a while, not in Canada, but in the U.S. for sure. Big in the Far East, big in the Middle East, and pretty big in, um, in Europe, primarily Italy, France, Spain, and the U.K where you expect it to be. So um, all, all, all systems go on Dr. Varenia's. I'm really excited about what we've created so far. And I think uh, the next little while we're gonna just explode. 
It's a category, uh, Craig, that I find is really on trend. It got goosed a lot by COVID because people found new ways of doing lots of different things. But people stay home more frequently now. Uh, they entertain at home more frequently now. Um, so our, our products are great to uh, give that atmosphere to your, your home. They're also great as hostess gifts, you know, to bring somebody um, a diffuser or a gift set or a candle. Um, it's just really easy to do. Thank you so much again, Daniel Ritchie, for joining us today. Thank you for your time. And thank you so much, everyone, whether or not you're watching this on our YouTube channel or listening to this on one of our podcast channels. I'm Craig Patterson. I'm the founder. I'm the publisher and CEO of Retail Insider Media. Thank you so much again for joining us here today. Take care and bye for now.